1: Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 82 for Friday, August 14th, 2015. It remains the year of our Time Lord, Dr. Emmett Brown. Today we've got a review twofer. I feel like neither of these two new releases seem more important than the other, so we're just going to review them both. First we're going to talk about Straight Outta Compton. No, first we're going to talk about The Man from U.N.C.L.E. And then we're going to talk about Straight Outta Compton. That's how similar they are. <laughs> I don't even know what order we're going to talk am I, about. Am I
2: here. seeing Double am I like crossing you my know, eyes.
1: Let's just review all of them twice and then let everyone, you know, choose their own adventure. Perfect. Um, um, am I tronning?
2: Uh, you were not. For, you were for like one second, but not. You tron like pretty bad for me. Bad for me. Anyway. I don't know. Are you tr- is she tronning right now?
1: How do I sound now?
2: Yeah, a little tronny. A little tronny, but not.
1: You guys bad. sound a little tronny to me too. So that's fun. I'm going to keep talking. Does that sound okay?
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. We're starting with the Man from Uncle, which is a movie I haven't seen, so maybe this would be a good time for me to stop talking. And uh, I don't know. Let's defer to Matt Patches.
2: Let's defer to me. Yes, <laughs> Man from Uncle is basically the Esquire movie, as I've been told by everyone at Esquire. So that, this is kind of that sound, my moment. I,
1: I I believe that it's set in the sixties. It's about suits. <laughs> it basically are the Esquire
3: right? offices made out of really bad CG.
2: Oh, now come on! So
1: much like Green Lantern suit.
2: That is a scarce. That is a scarce component of this film, in my opinion. But just to give people the rundown of what this is about, if they haven't seen it, uh, yes, it's set in the early nineteen sixties. Uh, we're, we're post-war, but maybe World War Three is on the horizon. It's um, a year
3: after the Cuban Missile
2: Crisis. Okay, that's key. And so there's a CIA agent. His name's Napoleon Solo. There's a KGB operative. That's
1: a name that people have.
2: Yes. Uh, well, spies do.
1: He, true to his
3: last name, tends to work alone until
1: Uh, until he's
2: paired with a KGB operative named Ilya Kurik. I don't, I (laughs) don't even make me try that. Um, So this uh, played by Army Hammer. So yeah, Napoleon Solo is Henry Cavill. And the KGB guys, Army Hammer, and they get paired together after they're chasing this German gearhead gal played by Alicia Vikander. Who and at the beginning of the movie, Henry Cavill trying to get her out of Germany, tr- cross the. Am I correct, David? They're trying to cross the Berlin Wall. Is that uh, the, the yeah, barrier? I mean, he's,
3: trying, he's trying to get her out of East Germany. Right. Uh, yeah. Away back into away from behind the Iron Curtain.
2: Yes. So they're both trying to basically kidnap this girl and get them to their side for their own uses. Um, and by whatever means, it's it's a little unclear to me exactly why they have to be paired together to take down, to basically use Elisa Vikander as, as bait uh, to kind of infiltrate. Her father is a nuclear physicist and he might be – he's been kidnapped and he's going to build a bomb for some nasty people, some ex-Nazis. They're Italian, actually. One's Italian, and his wife is English. And uh, Italian Nazi There's a lot of different European uh, it presences. Very
1: complicated. Very
2: colorful. Actually, it's not. Co- it's not complicated because they don't even bother really connecting all the dots. You're you're so on board. I was at least with Henry Cavill, Army Hammer and Elisa Vikander's relationships, their dynamics, their charm that you're pretty much whisked away on whatever espionage mission they go on. They tell you exactly what they're going to get in this scene. And it's very – and I believe David will bring this up too – has this heist film aspect. I mean it's a spy movie but I wouldn't really put it next to like Mission Impossible or something or even the Bond movies. This is very much – Guy Ritchie directed this film and I think it has lineage in his crime films where he's a man who likes to see how it's done because that's part of what being cool is all about and being, you know, a debonair shows his work and it's I wor- think it's
1: worth noting you wrote a piece about how Guy Ritchie's films are the definition of cool.
2: It's so. true. I well I went in with a motive because I already believed this and I wanted him to atone. <laughs> both atone, atone f- well both atone for his sins of the past. I've not really liked Guy Ritchie's movies, but also I I'm, I'm kind of down with what he's trying in all of his movies and this is my favorite Guy Ritchie movie by a long shot. I think this is a really fun ride um because it's all about style. It's all of, I mean not necessarily flashy camera work. There's a little bit of that, as David alluded to. There's a, there are car chases that are amplified by CG and crazy camera work, but there's not a ton of that. That's, it's pretty rare in this. It's very much about, like, wandering around amazing s- scenes in Italy or going to the horse races or just, like, wearing a bespoke suit. Um, how did we get into a safe? Let's break into a safe in a scene. Have a little bit of shootout. But not really. There's not a lot of action in this movie I was surprised it's it's relatively level-headed it's about banter it's about espionage more than it is big shootouts and big action scenes and I had a ball with it I was very surprised yeah, especially I guess going into it I haven't heard a lot of people getting excited for this movie
1: I have feel- heard I feel like I've heard a number of people saying the exact same thing as you. They weren't necessarily fans of Guy Ritchie, and they were really charmed by this. But then uh, then there's David.
3: Well, it's August, and I think it's just a, a matter of, like, here's your slop. Hope, hey. hope you enjoy it.
2: I am not uh, settling. Oh, I am not but, settling um, here, as you'll I, learn later in the, uh, in the uh, review segment.
3: Right. Um, I think that the look of this film is both its greatest asset and its... Um, Achilles heel wouldn't be right. It has many flaws from tip to toe, but uh, it's definitely its most glaring problem. 60% of the movie or thereabouts were shot on location, and all that stuff looks gorgeous. They shoot on the Spanish Steps. They shoot at a racetrack in Sussex. They shoot in this great island in the Mediterranean Sea, uh, inevitably for the villain's evil lair. Uh, <laughs> the 40% that is not shot on location, that was shot in a studio, looks like absolute vomit. Is
2: there a scene that comes to mind when you say this? the
3: chase scene in Berlin. Okay, uh, so the 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 one scene
2: that's really expanded with CGI. That's really the only thing that comes to mind.
3: It's so hideous, and it has – it really sort of detached – you know, this is a movie that that wants a cartoon vibe. It reminded me a lot of the anime franchise Lupin the Third, uh, which is by definition a cartoon. And here you have a live-action movie that so desperately wants to be a cartoon and is having a lot of trouble negotiating – ...between its real-world aspects and its uh, more animated elements. Um, And you see that in the the very larger-than-life performances, particularly from Henry Cavill, who I think is the most charismatic person here. He finds a really fun balance. Uh, It's like Superman without all the baggage, really, as Napoleon Solo. And unfortunately for Army Hammer, who is saddled with a nothing of a character... Um, he doesn't get quite the same. And the the pattern between the two is also pretty stale. I think uh, the script in general for this movie, also co-written by Guy Ritchie, is rather rancid. It's just not clever in the way that this kind of movie needs to be. And so it really has well, to rely on the charm of its actors. And while the characters are a bit flat, the actors, uh, you know, Cavill and certainly Elizabeth Debicki as – the villain and Alicia Vikander uh, bring a, a great deal of uh, enthusiasm to this. And well, that's what's more- interesting
2: because Henry Cavill and Armie Hammer don't necessarily have a lot of like great scenes together or a lot of great chemistry, but they don't have a lot of great scenes together. It's really... Henry Cavill and Elisa Bickender, or Army Hammer and Elisa Bickender, or Henry Cavill and Elizabeth Debicki—it's like all these different people kind of going in their own independent routes and bringing. It's like a cla- it's it's like splatter painting, right? You see it to see Henry Cavill in blue, splash with Elizabeth <laughs> Debicki. I don't know. It's just you don't. These two don't have to be in the same room. You would think it's a buddy comedy, maybe, but it's not. It's just about these independent flavors uh, kind of mixing feel and melding.
1: Disjointed as no, it, I don't think it so. It definitely feels
3: disjointed to me, and I think it. it Unfortunately, uh, does not realize that it's not a buddy comedy. Um, there is one very strong sequence that uh, tellingly separates Cavill from uh, Hammer in an action sequence where one of them sort of sits back and watches the carnage. Uh, whether but that's a forced... directorial
2: choice. You're applauding yes. Guy no, Ritchie that's, there.
3: That's a very clever scene, uh, but they're not actually forced to in- interact with one another directly, and <laughs> it's their strongest spark in the entire film. Um, the, the, the scene he's talking scene... about, just to
2: expand without spoiling, is it's – this movie chooses not to go in the action direction a number of times, and this one does it in a way that's so hilarious because we're basically seeing action – kind of reflected, you know, it's we're we're going to be all on the character who's whining and dining. Um, and it's very, very funny. Yeah.
3: I mean, and like, the other point. best scene in the movie also takes place in the background, which is this uh, Alicia Vikander dance scene in uh, her hotel room, which t- she's dancing out of focus in the background while Armie Hammer does whatever he's doing in the foreground. And I think He's that, playing
2: chess with himself. Right. Sure. It, it, it As sort Russians of, do.
3: Sure. A microcosm for... Um, Guy Ritchie's difficulty with foregrounding the most interesting thing available to him. And I think uh, when he's working with only one plane of of action, it's really boring. There are some really, really garbage action scenes in this movie. There is not much action, as Patch has said, uh, and you will be glad for that because when there is, it's it's pretty bad. You did
2: not Um, like the scene. I mean, there's a big heist moment where they are breaking into a safe and they're working together. And it is the real buddy comedy moment. And that plays very well, I think, when they, you know, as you referenced in the beginning of this review, uh, Napoleon Solo works alone, but he's caught with, uh, he finds Army Hammer trying to complete the same mission as he does. And I I did like the ongoing joke about how the Russian technology is always better. Um, Just playing, this movie leans into the time period so well without being necessarily campy or really being a, like an all out period piece. It's, it's the, just, music. It, the
3: music. The music. I love Daniel the music. Pemberton is uh, is spot on. It has this very love it prickly uh, feel. It totally and the movie does a very good job of nailing the vibe. It's all the details where the problems arise, but the the overall vibe is strong. It does. Uh, have a very palpable connection to the TV show that um, I've seen about eight minutes of. But I understand, again, that the world that has been digested from that and vomited up in Austin Powers and everything else. Um, and
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the world of the TV show matters so little for something like right, this. Right, of like, course. many people see Which is
3: so weird right? when you see the commercials. Uh, the last line of the movie, this is not a spoiler, is that uh, they, they coin, finally, the term man from uncle. They don't even tell you what the acronym stands for until the closing credits. But in the commercials, they lead with that as if it's this like, big mic drop, like Hugh Grant going, "Your new code name, Uncle." Like anyone under the age of sixty gives a shit. Uh, and uh, I
1: guess it's to be like, "Hey, guys, it's a code name. It's not about an uncle, <laughs>
3: right?" I, yeah, they have to kind of define it's, it. it. It's bizarre. It's a you know, I. It I, I, has an air
2: of mystery, you know.
3: It's you know, cool. I know, but I don't want to chastise them for taking. Again, let's not applaud them for doing something original here because they're not. But I also don't want to chastise them for taking a somewhat out of the. Uh, run, run-of-the-mill franchise like and trying to resurrect it. Uh, right, yeah. I mean, there, there's think pieces to be had about the four big spy movies we're getting this year. Um, I just... The, and the, the music, as I said, goes a long way. They use a lot of deep cuts uh, from the era. There's a great Tom Zay song. Um, who's a Brazilian musician that's used to great effect. Uh, I, I just think that there's so little wit about Guy Ritchie and everything that he does uh, that... You can feel, and it's very enervating while watching this movie, how much smarter and tighter and funnier uh, this should all be if someone had that smart sense about them to, to do it. I mean, like I, I, it's just not there. It's in sight of being there, but so far away that it's just more frustrating than anything else. I would rather see a uh, gallery show of the costumes from this movie <laughs> that you know, are modeled by the actors than actually. But that would not be as interesting because
2: in. you're really appreciating Henry what Henry Cavill does here, I think. And and has this dapper way, way, way with him. He's Who knew? I mean, he, he can really work a room, he can pull off these tricks, he can be a bumbling idiot, you know, he's not perfect. Um he doesn't yeah, he doesn't go all the way into cartoon character. Uh he's not a cartoon character. He's not James Bond Jr., basically what I'm saying. <laughs> Literally the cartoon character. Um and and I like, you know, Guy Ritchie gets away from some of his own sensibilities here. You know, I don't like the Sherlock Holmes movies at all, where this, this fetishization of of like masculinity and like watching people punch each other—that's all gone. And it's like it's just gonna dive straight into the period uh, 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 flourishes with the the, the mod cross cutting and. Um, I don't know, just the mannerisms and the and the backtracking to how, how do they do that? How do they do that? Like even the the scene, I think they tease it in the trailer where Henry Cavill pulls the tablecloth off a table. You don't really get to see it at first oh, and then the they call- go back oh, and do that. It's very funny. That.
3: I hate it. No, the callbacks are so glaringly <laughs> obvious. They're so clumsily done. You're supposed to be impressed by these parlor tricks. So it's just like this is rudimentary Silly spy stuff. I thought that was so poorly handled. It really aggravated me and I thought epitomized the lack of wit in this whole production. Uh, but meanwhile, I'm humming Roberta Flax Compared to What, which is the song they use over the opening this credits. This movie is uh, about and again, the music. The, it's the about the style.
2: Yes, huh? that's it. Well, and if you're calling the atmosphere spot on, then you're calling the movie... Pretty darn good because that's what this movie is setting out to do: reliving those moments, reliving hey, the cinema of that time, the mood of great European wallpaper on a
3: crumbling house,
2: <laughs> but that's not. The... <laughs> you're you uh, the actors stand. I mean, you love Alicia Vikander. Come on,
3: <laughs> I I do. Uh, but Alicia Vikander was also in Seventh Son. I mean, these things happen. She is, <laughs> did not she see. Is, by far, the uh, you know, I think she's she's a great. I don't want to say she's by far the best part of the movie because Debicki is great, um, Cavill's great, uh, and her character is a little bit more muted. But yeah, the, I think I, I wrote in my review of this movie, which you're going to read in Little White Lies, that Guy Ritchie has an underrecognized flair for casting. Uh, I think that he that's one of his greatest strengths and something that's sort of been in the bedrock of his career that he's always had such a solid eye for casting. You can see it from Lockstock. Uh, on forward, from understanding that Brad Pitt would be so great in that bizarre role he plays in Snatch, uh, and so on, Madonna probably being his one misstep in a movie that was ill-conceived to begin with.
1: Blinded by love. Right. Uh, I, I
3: will
2: say this to, uh, uh, to to kind of cut my rave down a little bit here. I think the one problem I have with this, with this movie is that it goes – for color and it goes for humor and it goes for cool. And it's this suave swagger. But then all of a sudden there are, there are moments of like severe violence or like really weird. And people will know it, the scene that I'm thinking of right now when they see the movie, but it gets so dark and it gets so violent in a very weird way that the tonal shift didn't really work for me. And it does it occasionally where this movie kind of loses step because I don't know, and and that's a guy Ritchie flaw. I think he doesn't really understand what can work in the vehicles he's creating. He's just kind of putting it all out there. And the that Audacons. sounds
1: like the Sherlock Holmes movies too. I remember there being kind of jarring moments of violence. I liked those movies, but I remember that in those too.
2: Yeah. So they, I, David, I don't know what you thought of that scene, but
1: uh,
3: the the torture scene. You mean? Yeah,
2: there's a torture. Guy um, I think it's it. almost.
3: It's almost obligatory in this kind of movie to have a torture scene where they have ample opportunity, of course, to dispose of the hero. Uh, the villain walks away and leaves a lackey to do it. And guess what happens? <laughs> um, it's it's textual. I
2: laughed, though. I laughed at the punchline of it. But the, the setup is yeah, no, like, again, oh, my again. God, and this is getting so real. It's all about the Holocaust. <laughs> without
3: spoiling anything, the, the punchline of that scene, how is it shot? It's in the background.
2: But that's this, <laughs> that's saying, this movie. You're yeah. describing what this movie is setting out to do and what it's doing so well, which is playing against the conventions of an action movie. It's not a Bond movie where Bond is going to be engaging in every big moment. These guys are, are like cool enough to just have their own yeah, chit-chat but the problem like, look is, away. Is it's the like the people who walk away from explosions. 90% the
3: movie where they're foregrounding the action <laughs> doesn't work. I think that all of the movie's clever moments – uh happen to be But you know, even in the car the chase that you part hate, of the
2: texture. It's like we're in the back of a car or we're in Army Hammer's car. Not a nice- lot of that chase scene happens like th- with CG zooming cameras. You're thinking of like two shots. No,
3: it's not the CG zooming necessarily. It's actually the the plates they use for the backdrop to create a uh, 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 East Berlin at night in 1963. It's hideous and fake and there are really nice physical beats in that sequence, and I thought they were all uh, ruined, almost if not entirely, by these looks at the scenery around it, which completely deflated uh, my ability to believe in what I was seeing and to engage in what I was seeing. Uh, I think it's an ugly movie when it's not a beautiful movie, uh, and there's very little middle not ground. When it's
2: not in close-up on Alicia Vikander, and
3: you're going, Aww. of course, that's that's the subtext. <laughs> Uh, But, you know, Guy Ritchie, you're a hack, and I can't wait for you to retire, but this is definitely one of your better efforts, so congratulations.
1: Wow, faint praise from David Ehrlich. What more could a filmmaker hope for? Been in this interesting streak the last couple summers where some kind of serious movie opens in August. There was, uh, I think The Help might have been what started it a couple years ago. It wound up getting an Oscar nomination. You no, know, it was two years
2: ago. Wasn't that 2000?
1: It was a couple years ago. It's like 2011 oh, maybe. Um so long ago. Um, there's the beginning of the Jessica Chastain era, if we can remember a time before then. Um, and then last summer, there was this biopic, Get On Up, which didn't wind up getting that much award season traction, but definitely was kind of a more of a movie for grownups. And then uh, there's now another music biopic opening at almost the exact same time, which you can uh, see being kind of of a similar impulse. But this one is a really different music biopic about a really different group. Uh, Straight of Compton is about NWA, which is, I mean, I'm, gonna, I'm not even going to try to pretend. I knew so little about NWA before seeing this movie. Like, I was culturally aware of Ice Cube and Dr. Dre and that, NWA was a group that had existed, and gangster rap was a thing that happened. And I knew about the Rodney King riots. Like I really had so little knowledge. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try to be like, well, NWA was a well, you probably learned like, a I lot. I don't know. I learned a lot from this
2: movie because it's basically the Wikipedia page.
1: <laughs> well, I just wanted to be clear as I try to set up a plot summary that I'm not trying to pretend I have any great amount of knowledge. I don't know a ton. But n w a rap group formed in compton uh neighborhood of los angeles in the mid nineteen eighties uh dr dre e z e and ice q were kind of the three central members at least according to this movie because there are two other members of the group in the movie who I don't remember either of their names um MC so, Wren. so far as uh, yeah and then that other guy uh yellow d j yellow yes yeah okay so for the purposes of this conversation, I think there are three of them. Um, and we kind of watch their rise to fame kind of in a really classic, biopic way. They uh, s- team up with a manager, Jerry Heller, played by Paul Giamatti. And uh, their first single becomes a big hit. It's being called into all the radio stations. They record an album. Um, and then it gets interesting because they are kind of the beginning of Gates Rap. And they're going on this tour and kind of singing these really provocative lyrics about crime. And, and know, that
2: thing that things they things do – oh, wait, different movie, sorry –
1: and that doing, they're doing that thing they do. Tom Hayes is involved. Yep. Um, so they, made, they, you know, they are accused of inciting a riot in Detroit, and they have Tom Brokaw in Real clips kind of talking about this brand new genre of music because they are these, you know, angry, in some ways, angry kids from a neighborhood of California where they are frequently targeted by police for being black, which uh, brings up one of the groups' most famous song, "Fuck the Police," which you know still has cultural legacy today, I think. Um, and
2: somehow all and, of this that you've described is about, the first, about the first 30 minutes of a two-and-a-half-hour movie.
1: So is, is it, it's not quite two-and-a-half hours. It's, it's
2: two-and-a-half hours long.
1: It's a long movie and still doesn't manage to hit on some of kind of the, the remarkable careers of some of the people involved. I mean, you see in the closing credits, like, Dr. Dre sold Beats to Apple for billions of dollars, and that, like, couldn't really squeeze its way into the story. Thank God it couldn't. Why would I want well, to see – It goes that? to show you the amount – like the fascinating lives these people have led and kind of the inherent trouble of biopics, which is where you're trying to focus on a single part of the story. They're not doing a cradle to grave biopic because some of these – most of these people are still alive. Um, but for me, I think Straight Outta Compton succeeds for a long time because you've got this kind of rise from nothing story that is – really familiar like this movie is leaning into the cliches in a lot of ways to the point that like you're watching like the records being pressed and the like the phone lines lighting up at the radio station where they're becoming a big hit but it, it really isn't yeah. apt that thing you do reference yeah. <laughs> um but you've got the energy of the i think the the three main characters and then plus paul giamatti of course are really great and there's this energy to the whole thing because you haven't seen this kind of musical biopic about a bunch of rappers before like it's just i mean i saw the notorious B.I.G. biopic and if telling you if you think this is stale go see that movie for how much staler it can be and this it has a, a fun vibe and like movement to it for a long time there's basically a point where the group starts splitting up and for me, it gets to the point where it shows L.A. riots and then jumps ahead about a year. And after that, it all the wheels kind of fall off. But I was really with this movie for a long time. I really felt captivated by the beats of the story. And, you know, part of it is because I didn't really know the story. Like I, you know, was vaguely familiar with Dr. Dre and Suge Knight's professional relationship but didn't know that much about it. So there was surprises in it for me, but I feel like the performances and the kind of the novelty of seeing this glossy Hollywood biopic treatment for a rap group really kept me going with it. Um, but Patches, you were basically, you were straight out of straight out of Compton after about 30 minutes in.
2: Wow. Yes. Yeah. I guess, I guess I was, um, I don't take any thrill in seeing a glossy biopic of a band or, or of, of a American hip hop group, if you will, uh, that, You know, they wrote a song called Fuck the Police. And this movie does not have the soul of that message in it at all. Uh, There are three good scenes in this movie. and They all involve (laughs) being in Compton and experiencing this push and pull of the LAPD overstepping their bounds, being relevant. Mm -hmm. Why are we telling this story? Is it just because NWA made a huge album and they were one of the first – I mean, they weren't one of the first rap groups – as we see evidenced in this movie, um, no, there are New were New York groups yeah. that they meet up. They and were
1: an influential writer. They're in a
2: very important – I mean, uh, Straight Out Compton is a huge album. It was, it was essential. It swept the country, as we see in the film. Um, but that's not enough. We actually discussed this the other day uh, when we were talking about biopics and, you know, is fame what it takes to just deserve a movie? I argued that it was and and I would argue that there's a great film to be made about these guys and a lot of what I want to see happens in the first 10 minutes of this movie. The best scene in this movie is the first scene where easy is selling drugs and the cops come and they use a tank (laughs) to bash down the door of this drug house and it's insane and everyone scatters and you're like, holy shit, this was dangerous Compton. Is a really dangerous, dangerous place. That was totally as much law uh, enforcement that there was scattered across it was was lawless. It was insane. And we, See, I
1: think it's crazy to call that the best scene when there is another scene, as you pointed out, a lot of these great scenes involving the LAPD later in the movie when they're at their recording studio, recording studio at Compton, and they're standing outside, kind of eating their breakfast, and the cops show up and make so them that's all you know, kneel that's- on the sidewalk. Yeah. But no, you're right. I just think that scene is so much more powerful because we're getting that sense of police brutality with characters that by that we know.
2: I really love that scene, scene too. I love that scene, too, because it also positions Paul Giamatti in a place where it's like, you know, even the white people think this is fucked up. Um, That's real drama, like throwing these kids on the ground when they're cutting the biggest album of all time. Wow. That is powerful stuff. And that is five minutes in this movie. No, no. I mean. Come on. Yeah. It's further in the movie. No, I'm sorry. It's five minutes of the movie.
1: Oh yes, okay.
2: Um, this whole movie, I'm like so curious about these guys. You know, as soon as we meet Cube and we meet Dre and we meet Easy, they're already great at what they do. Cube can already write perfect lyrics. Dre can spin, and you know, I think the first thing we see him in is uh, yelling at his mom because he's not taking care of his kid. What is he doing? What's his life? Well, we don't really know because he's just great at spinning. And he's going to – that's all he's going to do. He's going to be an amazing person from beginning to end in this movie. There is no flaw even when we see him not taking care of his kid. How can you – how can these guys make a biopic of themselves and have it turn out in any way dramatic? I mean they're yeah, it's so Grey sanitized.
1: Also some serious like – historical of history of abusing women and arrests and a lot of things he was involved in and in this movie glosses over severely because Dre is a producer on this movie. Yeah,
2: and still, and despite all my, my frustrations with having really no introductions to these guys, not understanding Compton from their eyes at all, except for these very rare moments of police brutality, like you really don't get their, their youth, how they got into hip-hop. Who are these people? Well, it doesn't matter because right now we're going to cut the grazed-out hip-hop album all time. And really, do we see them working on it? No, we just oh. we see them like, "Hey, I got another lyric. Let me throw it down." Then we're gonna do this, and now we're gonna go do this song and this song. There's no process. Like, if the whole movie was about making the album, which I think it should be, I, if it's the most important album, spend the whole movie talking about how that it got made. Almost.
1: There is a great scene where they convince Easy to rap for the first time. Because great scene. Cuba's written these lyrics that are and really you know, funny it's about. Yeah, Cube's written these lyrics about gangsta life, and you've seen enough of his life. You you see his parents kind of talking to him. You you see less of his home life than even Dre's, which I was also frustrated by, but you recognize that he's, like, kind of a well-cared-for kid, and he's written on these lyrics about the gangsta life, and Easy is the only one of them who's, like, really lived any of that. So they convince him to rap, and he's terrible at it at first, and it's really funny. And the energy that you get with Dre, and he's in the booth, and he's talking into it, I feel like that kind of really carries through a lot of the parts of the movie that do like leave you to sketch. I'm not saying the script for this is flawless, but I think but you're
2: describing parts, stuff parts like that. That's in the first 30 or 40 minutes of this movie. When the guy Ice Cube's son, O'Shea Jackson Jr. Plays Ice Cube and he's really good. He just has this like, yeah, conf- this good. growing confidence. Um, Just this, this He looks
1: so much like, he Ice looks Cube. so
2: much <laughs> like him, but it's, but he's, it's separate. It's, it's beyond just looking like him. He just has this real, this innocence and this strategy in his eyes as he's trying to navigate. He's the one who's very keenly aware that maybe NW- N.W.A. is getting screwed behind the scenes by, uh, by Jerry, Heller Jerry Heller and maybe easy too. you know, friends turning on friends. He's aware. And that's really interesting. Dre is almost a non-presence, even though I like the actor who plays him. I really don't I like feel like too. he has a moment like what's his big scene? This movie. His
1: big scene is with Suge Knight, much later in the movie. Much by later, that, that by that point the movie. Has but they been have kind no of, uh, like
2: even him and out. Suge Knight have no relationship other than Wikipedia entries and like this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, and then there's some sort of emotional fallout. Like even Dre has this. Oh my God, the women in this movie are. Nothing. Yeah, the, the nothing. movie
1: really le- like the the misogynist lyrics of N.W.A. have been pretty well established, and the movie really doesn't do anything. It Really, kind of like leans into it. Like there's a by Felicia joke for no reason, really, just to get a laugh. Yeah, um, that was
2: really weird. I mean, but beyond the misogyny and the homophobic nature of N.W.A. N.W.A.'s lyrics at times, that is not even. I'm I'm I have a bigger problem with. The way that these female characters come in and out, like all of a sudden Cube's married or Dre's hitting on a girl, like there's a whole scene where he's picking up a girl, doesn't matter, not important. Why am I seeing this? It doesn't seem to impact him at all. All of a sudden he has a family. Is that the reason that's in? Just so we can like get another point in his life. Okay, well, he had a family, so he should in this scene.
1: I went to the bathroom at the moment where uh, Ice Cube goes in to try to negotiate getting out of his NWA contract. And then by the time I came back, he was in a separate meeting. He already had a wife and a child on the way and a hit record. so much. I was like, what the
2: fuck happened? There is so much contract negotiating in this movie. It's unbelievable how many times they're that. just sitting down talking about paperwork and stuff. It's so boring. But
1: I think that the presence of Paul Giamatti is Jerry Heller. Not that like he's the most important person in the movie, but he is a good performer. Well, I will I'll say, say that, that report, yeah, I'm going to sound super easy.
2: white saying that Paul Giamatti is great in this movie. <laughs>
1: he he's great in this movie. And it's important that he's great in it because his relationship I mean, the extent of his relationship with the other guys I don't think is that well established. And it's you know, you don't care really when Cube gets mad at him. But his relationship with Easy, I think, is really valid. There's a scene yeah. really late in the movie, kind of at a point at which I'd kind of given up, where they have kind of an emotional conversation. There's a couple of those. And I, I think that is really important. It just, but it's about he was know. the Svengali who swooped in and kind of told these guys what they were doing and you know, he didn't necessarily treat them right. And for Easy, actually, who was kind of seen as the superstar of it, it was hard on him. And you see yeah, that.
2: That dynamic's the most interesting because he is helping them in some way. He, like, he is a yes. great father figure at times. He's a great manager. He's screwing them, but he's not. Like, he, he's looking out for himself by helping them prosper, but just not as much as he should. It's a That's an yeah, interesting dynamic, but maybe the movie should be about grapple,
1: that. It doesn't grapple with that as much as it needs to in the end. Yeah, there's just
2: so of. much other movie going on. And I think the yeah. biggest, I mean, here's what we should talk about. I like NWA and I like the music a lot. And what I wanted was some raw as fuck performances like I don't know if they recorded these for the movie or if these if they're lip syncing to the original tracks, if if they're if they're new recordings, they sound just like the original tracks. So kudos to whoever re-recorded them. But um They sound like they're off an album, like they sound like they're being Mm. dropped into the editing timeline and people are actually just lip syncing to them. There's no tangibility. They're not in a recording studio putting this to track for the first time. They're not on stage in front of Detroit getting ready to say fuck the police to these guys. Oh, you don't
1: think there's an energy to those performances? No.
2: No, there's energy that, that, to the the blocking of us. Sp- I mean, the Detroit performance where they tell the police to fuck off, and the police come and bash them, you know, or chasing them and throwing them in the pavement and disrupting this concert. And there's a real tension well, of race. Well, fires
1: a gun somewhere, so that's true.
2: That's know. not a good idea to do.
1: They didn't. Ex- they didn't start it, but right.
2: Yeah. Um, but they riled people up. They were told explicitly, "Do not sing, fuck the police" at this Detroit show, and they did. Which is awesome. It's a great moment of, I mean, it's a great moment of fuck the police. That's what we want to see. I don't get that from the music, but I get it from the the writing and the staging of that particular scene. And I get it from the 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 music,
1: Like the moment where you watch Cube decide to sing that song, like you really feel the power of what he's doing. You feel his rebellion boiling up inside him.
2: Uh, I didn't, I don't get it from the performances. I, don't get it. I thought
1: that scene and then their first big one at the skating rink where they kind of uh, first signed their record deal. Like I thought both of those scenes, like you really got why they were so electrifying, like why they were such a big deal. Because we've seen so much rap performance between now and then. It is – the movie does have to do a lot of work to like bring us back to the point where See, they That's started. the difference. Think-
2: so you think a scene where there's no necessarily racial tension, just the history, the the moments and in, in the plotting, that – felt alive to you, but I think the scenes that felt alive to me were when this movie connects itself to uh, contemporary context
1: oh I thought oh, I thought those definitely did oh change. no I, I think,
2: know that I, I, you're saying that both work for you and I'm saying one worked yeah. for me because the acting and the direction was and this I mean the script is the failure here not the yeah, I mean the
1: movie gets an enormous amount of power from Black Lives Matter, which is really interesting because it was all in the works before most of this started. Um, but it, you know, the connection to it really is relevant and it built itself up to the LA riots after the Rodney King meeting and it, it doesn't it's so, do a lot with it. No. It's weird because it builds up to that kind of boiling point and then just walks away from it because by that point, all of our main characters are living in mansions and they're not really part of that.
2: They're totally detached. You know, the scene where they pro- are yeah. watching the Rodney King riots in, or in actually him houses. getting beat for the first time is just yeah. so flat and soulless. I mean, maybe that's how it really happened. They're all sitting in their giant mansions watching this happen and kind of getting frustrated, but it's not watchable as a movie for, for me. Um, it, there's really, yeah, after Detroit, when NWA disbands and they kind of all go their separate ways, I don't care about anything anymore. Even, you know, Eazy-E, as we all know or should know, uh, passed away, and that this is, I think, the driving... Point, uh, you know, the movie wants to get there, which yeah. means it has to yeah, chronicle you've... so much other stuff
1: and have him coughing in like three scenes. He,
2: it's so excruciating and not because yeah. he's going through a, an extremely painful experience, which I'm sure it was. Uh, as people may or may not know, he, he died of uh, HIV. HIV Believe or HIV related
1: AIDS or AIDS, okay. I think it's straight up AIDS, Um,
2: you know, something bad, (laughs) something that really put him in a lot of pain, and something that shocked him. Uh, And maybe that scene by the end, when we're getting to this emotional conclusion of his life, I was so drained by how boring this movie is. It's really unfortunate. There just seems to be so much drama brewing in this movie that it cannot land.
1: Well, it's. I think it. I think as much as I like this movie, I think it points out why people shouldn't have biopics made about them while they're still alive. It's really or produce hard. their own. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, it, literally, yeah, or produce their own. I mean, there's so much. I mean, when the Suge Knight biopic comes, like God knows, like if he's already yeah. dead and people can actually <laughs> talk about it, Jesus Christ, there's going to be a lot that we're in for. Oh, tangent. Uh, the people who play Tupac and Snoop Dogg, who show up for very small roles, yeah. and the guy who plays Tupac is Keith Stanfield, who is in um, Short Term 12. Short Term 12, who's awesome. Um, he does a very oh my good God, Snoop Dogg. So good, like he's yeah. in slightly more than the guy who plays Tupac. Uh, I think but the guy who both, plays Tupac in was, only
2: like one shot in the background. Yeah,
1: yeah, but the, he gets it like a close-up. Anyway, like Keith Stanfield, especially great casting. So good in that tiny little part. It kind of like makes you want the full. Yeah, he does know, a
2: um, he does a little rap. Uh, improv. I don't know if it was really improv or not, um, but it's awesome. <laughs> you
1: know? Oh, where where it's where they're putting together a, nothing but a G thing.
2: Yeah, or when he's in the mansion, he's the, yeah. he's just kind of partying with Dre. Um, yeah, that is just great. Like I, more moments of that where they're inventing, where they are, you know, it's all off the cuff. I, I love that.
1: Yeah, the Death Row Records biopic. Whenever it comes around after Dr. Dre is dead, which you know, at this rate, who knows he might outlive us all. Um will be really interesting. Cause the, yeah, there are really limitations, especially with showing I mean I think it does show Ice Cube and Dre being flawed, but not to the extent that you probably they probably could. The
2: fact be. that this movie has room for Ice Cube to pen the script to Friday <laughs> tells you everything that's wrong with this movie. It's just forcing so much into itself. It doesn't matter. You know, the thing I thought about, just to kind of wrap up here, I guess. Um, during this movie, there's a, there's a great documentary that I believe should be on HBO Go or HBO, whatever, um, called Tales of the Grim Sleeper by Nick Broomfield.
1: Mm-hmm. That's a great documentary. Um,
2: an amazing documentary about South Central um, that I felt was so much more alive and, and telling me about a neighborhood and telling me about the types of people who can come from there and a culture that can brew there. And a, an understanding and a misunderstanding on both the people who live in a neighborhood and the LAPD. It's so harrowing and it's but it's also so joyous because these people are, are vivid and fighting back against pe- the oppression, oppression that can exist in a contemporary state in America. Like it's crazy. And you think about N.W.A. This is the 80s. It's just like the violence being perpetrated against these young men. It's so disturbing. And this movie has no time for it. Um, you know
1: I, I don't think it's I mean you've already talked about how much you like the scenes of police brutality. I don't think it's fair to say. But that but what I'm
2: saying is there's no connection to the music. The music seems to come from they nowhere. You
1: literally walk in the room and write fuck the police after a scene of police brutality. That's the only
2: instance.
1: I don't know. I feel Where like Where does the, the rest come from? The energy I don't know. How does know. Dre know like-
2: how to start his own business? So The second portion of this movie is him starting death row. I mean, you
1: see that his mom is really hard worker and like. Dre has a kid,
2: okay? Dre had a kid in this movie who shows up once. And in that scene, he basically tells his wife to get lost.
1: What the fuck? What is
2: this movie? Who are these people? I want so much more from Straight Outta Compton. People seem to love it. I don't get it. I really don't.
1: I really like it. I real- I agree with basically all of the plot holes that you're pointing pointing out. But I think it has so much going for it that uh,
2: I just want the music that to kept be me engaged. better. I want it to be uh, raw. I don't know. It, yeah, it's really flat. It's exactly what you described at the beginning. Glossy, not for, not for this, <laughs> not for this. Doesn't work.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is a, a glossy biopic of N.W.A. is almost an oxymoron just for because yeah. of the role that they played in uh in pop culture, but I don't know. I, it had enough to, to it. And again, like I knew so little about them going in that it was probably more informative to me than it will be for most people.
2: And I'm getting like meta angry over
1: <laughs> the fact
2: that this movie is coming out this week. And I keep getting emails about Ride Along 2 coming out.
1: Yeah. So there well, is a
2: movie that could not be further from Straight out of Compton starring Ice Cube as a cop. As a cop who, I mean, like, shoots people and he goes I've against the law. I've
1: been a cop a lot of times.
2: I know, but this one is a particularly like, I'm a badass who just fucks with criminals and I'm going to shoot you. 20th,
1: that's what he is in 20 And 20th. it's
2: hilarious. 20th. And it's glossy and it's Hollywood and it's nothing like
1: I Listen, I, where I uh, came wrote from. my review of this while listening to my pretty mediocre Beats headphones that I got for free. Oh, dis. I mean, yeah, Beats are not great headphones. I feel like that's known. Um, so, I don't know. Well, get Richard. I I think
2: Straight Outta Compton will make a lot of people happy. We talked about how, and you kind of mentioned this in the beginning that Straight Outta Compton is like the first kind of biopic of this of this nature about hip hop. Oh, go,
1: go, go ahead and say. What yeah, thinking.
2: I was saying that it is for it is dad rock or dad dad rap. Dad rap.
1: It is the birth of dad rap. I think. Yes,
2: this is the moment where it's like this movie is basically like a a a. Foo Fighters biopic. <laughs> Who cares? That,
1: is that what we want next? A Foo Fighters biopic? No,
2: we don't want that. We don't want that. We want something with real energy, and we want something with with that shows that people were involved in making this music. And 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 Straight Outta Compton, not that movie.
1: <sighs> I think Straight Outta Compton is in its best parts of that movie, and I appreciate it for its best parts. And now. Yeah.
0: Uh-huh Uh-huh Coming straight out the kitchen Crazy motherfucker named Mike Mike, From a gang called niggas with appetites Couldn't gnaw it off, had salt off Squeezing me the chicken is, heart chicken is off. hard off Chucky too, boy, if you fucking with me the police are gonna have to come and get me off my ass. Gas is flowing out Before the brown motherfuckers start flowing out Stomachs start to rumble and grumble, knocking and shaking your pot of gumbo. gumbo. Scare my damn grandma like that. With a hat that's pointing at my ass. Damn, so very real smooth. Ain't no tellin' when I'm down for a bomb move. Got a taste that had me dancing. Got of oh yeah. like a horse, I was dancing. Oh yeah. You ain't got no motherfucking fool yeah. I'm about to act a motherfucking fool. So, no, maybe eating chicken out the box daily. Yo, weekly, monthly, yearly. Drinking juice, so I can see clearly that I'm down with the capital PIG. Cats can't fuck with me. So, when I'm in the restaurant, you better duck. Cause my appetite is bad luck. As I leave, food is missing. When I come back, boy, I'm coming straight out the kitchen. The
1: kitchen, the kitchen. Hey, Patches, what was this week's lightning round question?
2: Yes, it was in honor of Straight Outta Compton. Which musician would you like to see get a biopic?
1: I'm going first because I picked the one I want. Brian I'll Zitzelman do. says, Just make that David Bowie, Bowie movie with Tilda Swinton so I can die in peace already. Or
2: make that so. Halloween uh, version of the David Bowie biopic. David Bowie. As <laughs> boo. See what I did. Oh. there? Oh, wow. <laughs> I was going
1: with like Bowie Knife, like oh. Halloween, like Killer. Oh. Wow, you really.
2: Or the M- Marine Time version, David Bowie. I don't know.
3: That was painful for everybody.
2: <laughs>
3: David, David, what's, what's yours? your pick? <laughs> um, well, uh, I won't go with Nickelback. Uh, I will That's go just... with Louis Schuth at Schuth, S C H U T H, who says. Scorsese's Sinatra biopic, obviously, and I am saying this, I'm going with that choice, uh, not because I have any long standing interest in Sinatra. For me, he's really only good around Christmas time. But uh, I have, I'm just going to shout out to one of my favorite podcasts, which is uh, besides Fighting the Worm, of course, uh, Karina Longworth's Remember this pod. Remember you must remember, remember, this. You must remember this. I'm Come thinking on. of the Twitter handle. Uh, you must remember this. Remember this pod is the Avatar the uh, on Twitter. Uh, which is worth following. But uh, she did a great episode that I've listened to a number of times about uh, Sinatra. I think it was actually a two-parter. She's done a
1: couple of episodes about, about Mia
3: Farrow and one, Sinatra. Yeah,
1: she did one about his uh, late-era album that was all about outer space. Right, that
3: was like the first episode or the second episode of the show. Yeah, I mean, and then Mia Farrow, Mia Farrow.
1: Yeah, those episodes are great, too. And also, she just finished, and separately, she just finished her great Charles Manson series. That's Yes, super
3: uh, but she told, or reintroduced me to the world of Frank Sinatra engagingly enough that I would be more interested in a Sinatra, Sinatra biopic than I would have previously. I
2: think Scorsese was going to make that move with Johnny Depp. I,
3: I thought it was DiCaprio, oh, as maybe.
1: usual. And, uh, anyway, person, Patches, Patches. Patches Wait, man. I mean.
2: um, let's see. Well, someone said, uh, at Steven Sh- underscore Shaver said Metallica, but I think some kind of monster pretty much fills that uh, itch for, or scratches that itch for me. So I'm going to go with at Juve underscore Sinifo. who said Little Richard which could be like a spin-off. It could be the Expanded Universe.
1: The Get On Up (laughs) spin-off? Yeah.
3: I think you're (laughs) some kind of monster for that David Bowie joke.
1: Oh. Uh, You're still laughing. Yeah, Little Richard was one of the best parts of Get On Up. uh,
2: Yeah, that guy who played him in Get On Up was fantastic. He was great. great. I don't know much about Little Richard's story other than he appeared in some... um, when I was a little kid, I used to watch this fairy tale movie starring Shelley Duvall. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. And Little Richard played, I have no, Humpty Dumpty, something in
1: that. Uh, Someone write it and tell us what that was, so Patches can relive his childhood. All right, that does it for this week's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back next week. Summer movie season is almost over, we promise. Uh, in the meantime, tell the people who you are.
2: Yes, I'm Matt Patches, and I am the senior writer at Esquire.com, and I am on Twitter at Mr. Patches.
3: I'm David Ehrlich. I'm the Associate Film Editor of Time Out New York and the Editor-at-Large of Little White Lies Magazine. And you can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich.
1: And I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at VanityFair.com. We're on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-A-C-H. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week.